0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History class from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy B. Wilson. Uh, and Tracy, we've had a lot of heavy episodes as of late. We sure have. Which is great. But we are heading into the holiday season. And sometimes you want to have a little frivolity. Yep. Last year, we did two episodes about holiday figures from around the world, where we talked about the many non-Santa Claus figures that are celebrated during the winter season. So we talked about Krampus, La Bafana, Santa Claus, Piet, Grilla. Uh, when Tracy went on her honeymoon, she brought me back a lovely Grilla ornament. Uh, we talked about Bell and Père Fouetard and Tio de Natal, but there are more than that. Uh, so today we're going to add a third installment. This will be the 2016 edition of the Krampus and Friends Holiday Power Hour. Although right out of the gate, there's no Krampus in this one. We're just using that, uh, that naming convention to continue the series for continuity. But you can always go back to that previous episode and it's not really an hour. So we're fibbers as well in that regard, but, <laughs> but it is. Intended to mostly just be a fun way to think about the holidays from some other perspectives. Uh, some of it is very kooky, and you'll be like, "What? That's a
0: Christmas or New Year's tradition." <laughs> yeah. I, uh, one day, I think you were out of the office for uh, for some reason, and I put a, a little thing on our Facebook that that was like, "Okay, what sorts of winter slash Christmas slash Yule tide." uh topics do folks want to talk about? Because sometimes it feels like we are nearing the end <laughs> of seasonal topics. Um and two of the stranger from my point of view uh yeah. figures we will be talking about came directly from the folks' suggestions on yeah. that thread. Yeah,
1: and I'm, you know, we we love more. So if you want this to happen again a
0: year from now, feel free to keep sending those. We'll keep a list. Even though Holly just beautifully pronounced so many names, uh, we do want to say there are a lot of different languages represented here. We don't speak any of them. We are going to make our best heavily researched effort to try to say all of these right, but uh, please forgive us when we don't.
1: And I, I would say I think Tracy is probably being very kind when she says I beautifully pronounced those because I'm confident there was some butchering taking place. As we
0: were reading them, though, I was like, oh, those sound so lovely. <laughs> 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 we're going to begin with Frau Perchte, who is a holiday figure associated mostly with the Alps. She's common in Austrian and Southern German folklore, although she's certainly not confined exclusively to that area. And she's been part of the lore in other places as well. And there are also some slight variations to her name, which generally correlate to how she is represented in different geographical areas.
1: And there's a bit of debate around Pechta's origins. Uh, scholars who link her to paganism suggest that she was originally a goddess figure that then became twisted into a more sinister hag character as Christianity enveloped cultures that had pagan roots and kind of tried to adopt and adapt those, those ideas. So her name, according to Jacob Grimm's Deutsch Mythology, meant shining one. But it's also suggested that her name was potentially originally a completely different word, which is Stempe, uh, associated with stamping, sort of a, a more violent, angrier kind of idea, uh, and the darker parts of her mythology. And she's also uh, sometimes associated with a figure called Frau Holde or Frau Holle. Uh Sometimes they're kind of represented as sisters or cousins, or one is the northern version, one is the southern version. Uh, and that's a figure of possibly Scandinavian origin, who's also aso- associated with agriculture and the arts, and has parallel festival
0: timing, which is why they're often linked together. But much of perta's origin story is a mess of speculation and piecing together puzzles, which are missing really big pieces. This is one of those cases we often find where one writing, in this case Grimm's, asserts some things, and it gets picked up and repeated as fact without any actual substantiation for those claims.
1: Yeah, that happens a lot, particularly in folklore. I'm sure anybody, uh, should we have any folklore scholars listening, they know that this is a big part of picking apart and teasing out the truth of any given uh, origin story. So away from the paganism interpretation, there is a folklore scholar named J.B. Smith, uh, and he spoke at a conference in 2000 where he described her more as the folkloric personification of Epiphany. And this was, as he put it in a, a paper that he published later, quote, in harmony with a general medieval tendency to personify feast and fast days.
0: I'm just going to take a moment to say I really miss Labafana the Epiphany Witch. <laughs> You don't have to miss her. You can have her in her home this holiday season. Sure. So Frau Pachta's role as part of a holiday celebration has evolved, just the same as many, many other holiday figures. She shows up during the 12 days of Christmas, and in modern traditions, she has come to be known as sort of a behavior barometer for keeping children in line. Good children are rewarded and bad children are punished, and lying makes her especially angry. She's kind of a grumpy protector, taking care of people and warding off evil, but really ready to dole out penalties if she thinks you've misbehaved. But earlier incarnations of Prechte were
1: much darker in the judgment of good versus bad behavior. So she would punish people who worked, specifically those who worked at spinning, which is... uh, Task she's very closely associated with uh, who did that on holidays or did not participate in community feasts and celebrations. So she's often referenced as like the keeper of uh, an enforcer of taboos. So like you do not work on a holiday. You take that time to be part of the community and feast.
0: At times in her mythologies, she's taken on some truly gruesome characteristics. She would seek out the lazy members of a community and then punish them for their lack of motivation by cutting open their bellies, removing their viscera, and then filling them up with garbage. There are some lines that can be drawn from all of this belly slitting uh, and her connection to feasting and making sure that people observe the holiday calendar. Yeah, there are some kind of
1: uh theoreticals where people say, oh, yes, because they're... They're not taking part in the feast. She will fill them with things that they don't like if they're not willing to be part of that meal and celebration and community moment. But her sinister holiday dealings were not just about doling out consequences for the lazy. Greed was also a target and even being too inquisitive. So you can see how this kind of uh gets really to the heart of that whole community thing. Like basically don't be a troublemaker, do your work when you're supposed to take breaks and be part of the community when you're supposed to. Uh, and there are even some less common variations in her lore in which she finds children who have lied. We mentioned a moment ago that she really hated it and she scrapes their tongues with glass.
0: In some places, her legend extends beyond winter and the winter holidays and crosses over with other mythical figures. She said to live in lush wooded areas and in lakes in the summertime and to bless flocks of sheep for shepherds who brought her flax when it was warm. She was, in some places, so associated with this more agrarian spinning culture that it was said that she could sometimes be seen wandering the green slopes of mountains in twilight, carrying a golden spindle. And then she moved into the more mountainous caves in the winter, which is where she would make snow. It's just sort of lovely and
1: nicer than her cutting people open and stuffing garbage in their abdomens. There are some really specific folklore stories about Perkta, and there are three that we're going to mention. These were referenced, again, in that longer paper by J.B. Smith, and they feature traveling with sort of a band of ghosts. And those are those of unbaptized children who could not travel to their afterlife. So she and this group of spirits, and sometimes these spirits are characterized in this benign way as sort of these orphans and unbaptized children, but at other times they're depicted more as a a collection of demons that travel with her, and those are referred to collectively as Perkten. And in these tales, which are more modern, she serves in a role which rewards good for the most part, rather than her more terrifying, belly-slitting, tongue-scraping incarnation.
0: In one, while she's traveling with her party of unbaptized children in a carriage over rough terrain, a wheel falls off of their ride and a kind passerby makes a new linchpin by carving it from wood. And she tells him to keep the wood shavings, which then turn into gold in his pocket.
1: Sort of a much nicer version.
0: In another story, an impoverished
1: man goes looking in the night for a godparent for his newborn child. And this baby in the story is a fresh addition to an already large family that he is struggling to provide for. And when he happens upon Perta and her destitute children in the woods, he shows them compassion, remarking to one who looks especially poorly clothed. In some stories, this child is wearing only their undergarments. I'm going to butcher this word, so I apologize. You poor little Zodawascher and in addressing the child with a name which apparently translates roughly to ragged little mite and showing kindness he earns perta's blessing and good fortune soon comes to him in the form of a wealthy benefactor
0: the last of the perta stories that smith recounts features a farmhand who hides in a stove to spy on perta and her children after his employer prepares a room for them in their farmhouse for twelfth night when the travelers arrive she tells one of the children to plug up a hole she sees in the stove, and that was the one that the farmhand was looking through. He waits out their stay, and when he's, uh, when he emerges after they've left, he realizes that he is blind. He returns to the stove the following year, and this time Perta tells her child to unplug the hole, and his sight, his, his sight is restored.
1: I made a note that it's like mythical LASIK. Um, (laughs) So while Perkta's modern incarnation follows the frequent theme of holiday figures designed to encourage good behavior in children during the holidays, she has throughout her years been many things to many people. But always with a touch of magic and, of course, including some of those dark things like being a belly slitter.
0: There are also areas where a modern Perchten celebration takes place, and it's kind of like Krampusnacht, where her demons, which are young men in scary wooden masks, called Scheierperchten, run through the streets of the town. And in some places, this happens twice. The scary version comes first, and then later, when they run through the streets again, they are in handsome, non-demonic forms.
1: Uh, which sounds kind of fun to me, but, uh, also exhausting if you have to do it twice. So <laughs> we're gonna pause in the festivities here for a little break from one of our sponsors. So next up is the Welsh holiday figure, Mari Lwyd. And this name translates to Grey Mare. You'll sometimes also see it, uh, as, uh, Holy Mary or Grey Mary. And it can be, to foreigners, sort of equal parts festive and frightening. It almost seems, if you are not familiar with this custom, more like a Halloween celebration. Because while the Mari Lwyd is a character of sorts, it's really an act of merry though macabre puppetry.
0: The marie Luid tradition is believed to bring good fortune, and it all starts with a horse skull on New Year's Eve. That skull is then adorned with decorative ears and eyes and dressed up with accessories like bright ribbons and bells, and that's carried around on a pole, usually with a sheet wrapped around it to conceal the person who's carrying the pole.
1: And traditionally, the Mariluid was carried door-to-door by merrymakers who would sing, they would challenge the occupants to verse battles, and ultimately, if the Mariluid bearers were the winners of those battles, would ask to be invited into the home they were visiting. And there's actually a really fun uh, BBC film from 1966 of this call and response of song that goes on that's available on YouTube, and we will have a link
0: to that in our show notes. Once inside the home, the visitors would be treated to refreshments and sometimes would receive small gifts of cash. And in exchange, they would entertain for a bit before moving on to the next home. To have Marie Lud in your home was believed to bring with it good fortune and to clear the home of bad spirits. So really, this whole horse bearing visitors are always invited in for some hospitality.
1: Yeah, they always win in the the battle, whether no matter how it plays out, they're always kind of the winners. And so they get to come in. And this is actually, if you really want to trace it back to its most basic roots, a very, very old tradition. And it's certainly not exclusive to Welsh culture. Certainly performing with animal masks and singing in call and response style as part of a, a cultural tradition and sharing food and drink have been parts of very ancient customs that built community and marked the changing of the seasons. Way, way back into mankind's history.
0: As for the origins of this particular tradition, because of how old it is, things get kind of nebulous really quickly. But piecing together the ingredients, the horse in Celtic Britain represented fertility and strength. And additionally, the idea of passing back and forth from the living world to the underworld is one that held a lot of power. And this is the horse's skull. So the horse is deceased.
1: Yeah, so the horse is doing that passing back and forth as part of this New Year's celebration. But this old form of caroling-turned-friendly competition has also had a a really pretty active revival in recent decades. There are a number of small groups that uh, like to perform the Marilud in various Welsh towns, as well as bigger regional gatherings uh, where the horse skull puppet comes out. And this old ritual is enacted really with great glee. This is another thing you can find videos of online, and they're really quite
0: fun. In addition to all the New Year's appearances, it's also uh, sometimes there are appearances in the spring.
1: Yeah, and there's also, uh, for people who are curious what this actually looks like, there is a really interesting Flickr group that we will link to in the show notes so you can see photos of some of these decorated horse skull puppets. They're really quite fun. It sounds a little weird and creepy if you're not familiar with it, but it seems so joyous and delightful when you actually get to watch it.
0: Our next holiday figure is from Basque Country and it's sort of a Santa Claus variation. Olencero is a, an old man, grubby with smears of coal dust and has a pot belly and that may initially sound similar to Santa, but Olencero is not dressed in red fur trim suits. He wears more standard clothing, usually that of a pez- a peasant farmer and he has a big red nose.
1: Yeah, I was reading a translated page about him (laughs) where there was a significant hint that his nose suggested that he had some pretty chronic drinking habits. But... (laughs) I don't know if you if we should include that because it was just in the one spot. Uh, and following the theme of many of these holiday characters, Olentzero's origins are not entirely clear. Uh, his name may suggest the idea of calling or asking related to an older Basque tradition where children would go from house to house sort of singing for their supper. Uh, they would entertain in the hopes of getting food or money, but this was not like trick-or-treating. They would actually collect these things and then they would go back to their own home and and that food and money that they had gathered would be used to assemble a feast meal.
0: In writings dating back several hundred years, Olencero appears as a member of a race of giants who lived in the Pyrenees. According to this legend, these people saw a glowing cloud in the sky, so bright that it was painful to look at. And a man who was partially blind could look at it, so the giants held him aloft so he could get a closer look. When they put him back... He said the sign was, uh, he said this, that the cloud was a sign of the birth of Jesus. Okay, so
1: this may sound sort of nice and kind of an interesting and, uh, uh, variation on this story up to this point, but brace, because things are about to get really, really weird. Uh, so fearing the changes of the world that the arrival of the Son of God might hearken, this old partially blind man wanted to die. And he asked the giants to throw him off a cliff. And they walked up a mountain and fulfilled this wish. But then as they descended, they all fell to their deaths, save one survivor, and that was Olencero.
0: Now, according to this about-to-get-grisly legend, Olencero continued down the mountain into the villages below. And they got there and punished people who were eating too much on the day before Christ's birth by slitting their throats. There's some irony here in that Olencero was something of a glutton and a little too fond of drinks. So that's a little dark. Uh yeah, that's maybe not the most Merry Christmas story
1: ever, and that is not the story as it's told today. So now uh Olentaro is not a giant, but a regular human man who spreads love. And in this version of the story, he was adopted by a fairy after having been found in the woods as a baby, presumably abandoned. And as he grew up, he became a charcoal maker. And then he would carve figures out of the charcoal to create toys for children. And he would visit villages and distribute these toys every time he had filled his sack up with them. And on one such toy distribution visit, he was trapped while saving, uh sometimes it's one child, sometimes it seems like it's several children from a burning house, and he became trapped in the house and it looked like that was his end. But his fairy mother came to him in that moment, and to reward him for his bravery, she not only saved him, but made him immortal so he can make and share toys with children forever.
0: Now, life-size figures of Alencero are made with wood or paper mache and then they're carried through the streets on Christmas Eve.
1: Yeah, I read in one spot, but I couldn't verify again because most of this is foreign language and I'm reading interesting translations. Um, sometimes he is set on fire as part of the festivities to kind of represent that story. Uh, So, again, an interesting twist on the Christmas story. And I need uh, some eggnog. So let's pause for a sponsor break. Does that sound yummy to you, Tracy? Yes. Okay, let's have a sponsor break. We'll get some eggnog and then we'll get to our next holiday story. (laughs) Dead Moros, or Father Frost, is a Slavic variation on Santa Claus, and Dead Moros is an icon of winter, and he and his granddaughter, or daughter, or possibly fairy goddaughter, depending on your source, Snegurochka, bring New Year's gifts as they ride in their sleigh, which is drawn by a trio of horses and also includes a beautiful evergreen tree as its cargo.
0: Snegurochka is often mentioned as the thing that sets Dead Moros apart from other Santa-like figures, of which there are many, none of the others travels with a female counterpart. Snegorochka is also called the Snow Maiden, or just Snowy. And as we just mentioned, she has a number of different roles, because her origin story really varies quite greatly. She may be Father Frost's daughter with the Snow Queen, or she might, as one legend tells it, be a girl made of snow by a couple desperate for a child and then brought to life by their love. In the legend, because she cannot withstand the transition from winter to spring without changing form, she sometimes becomes a cloud after the warmth melts her, and so she represents the changing of the seasons.
1: And when she appears with dead Morotz, however, Snigarochka is a gorgeous, glamorous creature. Her long winter robes are always bejeweled, and she helps deliver gifts to good children. She also serves as sort of this bridge between Father Frost and the children, uh, because she'll play with the kids and she'll get Father Frost to join in from time to time.
0: Dead Moroz has roots in the St. Nicholas story, of course, as well as the Russian hero figure of Morozko, who is similar to Jack Frost, sometimes described as a demon of snow, who can freeze water with his cold iron fists. Morozko and in turn, Dead Moroz, is a, a duality of nature, a protector of the good and the hardworking and the punisher of the lazy and deceitful.
1: Yeah, pretty common theme through all of the holiday figures that we've talked about on the three episodes we've done on these where they, you know, uh, reward the good and punish the bad. And while Dead Moroz is similar to Santa in many ways, his style sets him apart a little bit. His great fur coat is ankle length and it and his cap are normally heavily embellished with white and metallic sort of graphical scrollwork designs that can range from, like I said, that scrollwork to, uh, you know, a smattering of stars. They often include pearl and crystal beading that mimic sparkling snow. He also carries a magical staff that helps keep sweet old Father Frost as nimble as a youngster as he travels through the cold winter night.
0: In the late 1990s, it was decided that dead Moritz's home is a small town in northern Russia called Veliki Ustyug which is in the uh, Voligodsky re- region. And if you like, you can get on a train and go visit him there, where he lives in a log cabin that sits at the point where three rivers meet. And
1: uh, Ded Moritz is fortunately a voracious reader because he spends his non-winter time poring over all of the le- letters that he gets from the children of Russia, carefully noting what their New Year's gift wishes might be.
0: His, uh... But Ded Moritz has his own dark Past in his mythology, while now he is known as this kindly, sweet man who spreads love and toys, he has been written about as a much more terrifying figure. 19th century poet Nikolai Nekrasov penned a poem called Moritz Red Nose, in which Father Frost was a cruel, uh, was cruel, freezing people to death for his own amusement. In one particularly horrifying move in the story, he freezes an impoverished widow and then laughs at her orphaned children. That's, That's not cool.
1: Not nice at all. <laughs> no, but eventually his image did soften. But uh what really ended up sort of changing things for Ded Moroz is uh, the Bolshevik Revolution. It halted appearances of this particular holiday figure for a time. So from 1917 into the 1930s, the sort of anti-religious movement made Ded Moritz, who is seen as a children's god, an unwelcome cultural icon. But he did reemerge in the mid-1930s, his views shifted slightly, and his benefit to the children of the country was seen as more important than the rejection of the bourgeoisie figure. Although this is really when he kind of became solidified as a New Year's visitor rather than a Christmas figure.
0: After the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1991, variations on dead morots developed uh, in the various countries that had previously been part of the USSR.
1: Yeah, there are certainly similarities, but some have even uh, changed up the name to really sort of set theirs apart and kind of uh, create their own cultural traditions. But since 2002, there's been this other interesting tradition that dead morots has been part of, uh, sort of an act of political goodwill. So every year, Father Frost has a holiday meeting with Finland's Santa Claus at a spot on the border that the two nations share. And literally while border guards look on, children perform songs and dances and the two holiday figures exchange gifts with one another. Uh, According to reports that I found, in 2014, Santa Claus gave Dead Moritz a universal charger for mobile devices, possibly to keep the elves charged up and ready. Uh, And Dead Moritz gave Santa Claus a picture book with Vladimir Putin on the cover. And then in 2015, things became a bit more traditional. Dead Moritz gave uh, Santa an ice snowflake, and Santa Claus, in turn, gave him a basket of sweets. So no telling what this year's exchange might include. Uh, (laughs) It maybe it will once again be traditional or maybe ultra modern. we don't know
0: i I'm not completely sure why because it doesn't exactly add up, but Snegorochka really reminds me of Susan from the Discworld books, and so now I want to go watch Hogfather. Oh, well, yeah,
1: I'd, there's also if you look at her, you can see that there's uh to be very modern culture e. You know, she is a snow princess, so she bears some resemblance to things like Elsa from Frozen. Sure. You know, any uh, even though Elsa is sort of a, a more Norway-based mm-hmm. idea, they're still like the long blue silvery robes that have all of this sparkle and ice on them. So
0: I thought of that as well. Yeah, and I, it, it it doesn't make a lot of sense that she reminds me of Susan, except that Susan is a daughter and is in Hogfather, like. The- <laughs> Which is also a holiday tradition in its own for many
1: people. Do you have listener mail? I do. And I decided uh, to keep it in line with sort of our lighter tone that we're having this time around. Oh, good. Uh, and <laughs> this also will come with kind of a hilarious lost items confession. So, uh, hey, it's no secret that I'm really shrimpy. I'm a short person. Mm-hmm. And we have a group printer in our office. And, you know, sometimes you'll print something and you'll forget it's on the printer. Yep. And our, uh, I don't know if it's our wonderful office manager, Tamika, or our wonderful IT person, Izzy, put up this kind of like, uh, you know, a little slot on the wall where you could put people's stuff that you find mm-hmm. off the printer. But it's up way high and I've never looked in it until today. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> when I found these two, uh, emails that I meant to read forever ago. Uh, and there they were. And I thought, oh, these are light and they're fun. And uh it will, you know, be a nice way to talk about something that's not quite so heavy well, and for the, our the, holiday episode.
0: The disparity in our heights has indeed gotten comments from people when we put up pictures of ourselves sometimes. yeah, Like, the I, people are like, is Tracy standing on a box? <laughs> no, Holly is
1: short. And Tracy is... too. Tallish. Yeah, you're on the tall sign. Uh, so these actually reference an older episode, which is the Montgolfier brothers, which was also not too crazy heavy. Uh, so that's delightful. The first, uh, is from a listener who I'm going to guess on her name's pronunciation as Tonya, but I'm not confident. So I'm sorry if I did that wrong. Uh, she says, hi, thank you for your excellent podcast. I always enjoy the episodes and they help me get through my housework on the subject of the Mongolfier episode. I've been moving some stuff from storage to my home and I found this watercolor pad. She sent us a photo. No, I did not buy it. It belonged to my grandfather. Here you can see the Canson logo as the Mongolfier balloon. If you check out more recent Canson paper, you won't see this. So as a reminder to our listeners, in case they do not recall, the Montgolfiers owned a paper company, which eventually changed hands a few times and then became known as the Canson Company. So that is why she's referencing this paper company. Uh I just thought it was funny that this should turn up just after I listened to this relevant episode. And one of you mentioned buying art supplies without using them. I am also guilty as charged, but I think my granddad is a record holder here. For example, I have no idea how old this paper is, but he died sometime in the 80s, so it is quite old. Uh, this cancel paper is quite good, but I like paper that's either very smooth or very thick, and this is neither, so I will see if I can find a way to use it. Uh, as we also mentioned, that cancel paper is not like an office paper supply, they like sell fine art paper, mm-hmm. so. Uh, fun one. And this was the other one related to the Montgolfier episodes from our listener, Melissa. And she says, uh, if you recall in that episode, I was like, they put the duck in the balloon to test it in the balloon basket. Why didn't it just fly away? Oh yeah.
0: We had, we had some questions about the logistics of that. And I, I think I know what you're about to read. Yeah. Yeah. And yes. I have a, I have a fair dose of chagrin. <laughs>
1: So Melissa's subject line is, the Montgolfier duck didn't fly away. And then the, the actual body copy of the email says, because they were in a cage. At least that's how it was illustrated in Who Invented It and What Makes It Work by Sarah Leslie, a favorite book from my childhood, published in 1976. I dug it out of my son's bookcase and snapped a picture of that page for your enjoyment. Uh, thank you for making my commute
0: so enjoyable. Long time listener, Melissa. Yeah, that makes total sense. They would put it in a cage. Things I feel foolish for having not even thought of. Putting the duck in a cage.
1: Yeah. Duck in a cage. Uh, that makes all the sense in the world. <laughs> it did not occur to me for one second. Which is very funny because uh, I think I've mentioned on the show before that when I was fairly young, my parents had a farm and we had ducks. I would have seen birds in cages. I don't know why my brain could not walk down that short little walkway to get there, but there it is. Uh, If you would like to write to us you can do so at historypodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. You can also find us across the spectrum of social media as at mist in history. That means on Instagram we're at mist history, on Twitter we're at mist in history, on Facebook dot com slash mist history. There we are, mist dot com, and Pinterest dot com slash mist in history if you would like to learn a little bit more about uh, holiday figures, you can go to our parent site, HowStuffWorks, type in the word Krampus, you're going to get some interesting stuff uh, you can also come and visit me and Tracy at our site which is mistinhistory.com. you can find uh, show notes for every episode that she and I have worked on together as well as an archive of every episode of the show ever, so please come and visit us at HowStuffWorks.com and mistinhistory.com. issues affecting the Latin community, and much more. Then, every Thursday, I'll be tackling trending stories and current events from our community. Listen to Life as a Gringo on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to
1: explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best
0: possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford